The following sermon is by Stephen Tillis, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Steve. So today is a little bit of a difficult task. I'm going to do the best I can uh, to preach this passage to you in context, uh, both in the context that it is generally here, but also as it fits within the wider range of the Old Testament. If I was going to do you a disservice, I would just simply give you a few points to think about out of this text. But what you need to know is that this passage is of supreme importance in the entire Old Testament. And it's important that you put that in that way. So I'll kind of speak to you and maybe from an hourglass standpoint. We'll start at the broad end and we'll narrow in and then we'll go back out from that. And so uh, as we bring this into context, what you should know is that in the Old Testament, there are two sets of prophets. So you have Joshua and Judges, Samuel and Kings. And I know in your Bible it probably says First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, but those are really just one book each. All right. So the former or the beginning prophets are Joshua and Judges, Samuel and Kings, and the latter prophets are Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then the twelve minor prophets. All right. We say that again. Two sets of prophets, former and latter. Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings. Latter prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the twelve, or those twelve minor prophets. Now I know already some of you are thinking, well, I thought Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings were historical books. Well, you're wrong. They're not. They do contain the history of Israel. But if you read them merely as historical documents, then you are missing what God intended for you to see. And that is that every single book of the Old Testament, and especially those former prophets of Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings, are pointing us to the coming Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, I don't know if you know this or not, but in verse number 10 of the passage that we're dealing with today, the horn of salvation, this messianic figure here, where you see at the end of verse number 10, and will exalt the horn of His anointed. That is the very first reference in all of the Old Testament to the Messiah. To the Messiah. Meshua is how you would say this, right? And so when we find ourselves in Joshua and Judges and Samuel and Kings, let me narrow it down for you a little bit more. When you read the book of Judges, which is right before Samuel, you find that the book is all about the chaos and the depravity of human beings. And the nation of Israel goes through this cycle where they have somebody deliver them and then they sin again and somebody delivers them and they sin again. And by the time you get to the end of the book of Judges, you'll find that it says that every man does that which is right in his own eyes. And can I tell you, that is a terrible, terrible place to be. You don't want to do what's right in your own eyes. You want to do what's right in the eyes of God Almighty. Amen? But Judges leaves us and the nation of Israel in a place of complete chaos, complete sin, and human beings are in need of a Savior. And on the far other end of that, 2 Kings chapter number 10 to the end of 2 Kings, you find that is the fall of the Davidic kingdom. And so the nation of Israel now is once again in folly and in chaos and in pain. And every human being is doing what is right in their own 
own eyes. And so sandwiched between the end of Judges and the end of Kings is this story, this narrative about a royal king. And his name will end up being David. And in a little while, we'll talk about the fact that in the New Testament, there will come one from the tribe of David whose name is Christ Jesus. And He will be the king that David could not be. At the beginning of every great redemptive narrative in the story of the Scripture, you will always find that most of the time it always begins with the barrenness of a womb in which God must bring life in a way that only He can do. For is that not where the Bible begins in Genesis? That it is God who creates Adam and Eve and it is God who brings forth Seth from that line to be a line in which the Savior would come from. And the rest of the story, if you were to go to Genesis chapter number 12, you would find that Abraham and Sarah, they are near dead when God gives them a miracle child. Is that not right? and Isaac and Rachel, and could we not keep on going and going and going? And what happens when you get to the book of Exodus? Well, Moses just happens to be a miracle baby who God brings from his parents and sails him down the river, and he is raised to lead his people to redemption. And if you were to move from the Old Testament into the New Testament you would find that another miracle birth takes place at the very beginning of the Second Testament. Isn't that right? Jesus is born of a virgin. The Spirit of God comes down upon Mary. She has not known a man. And a Redeemer is born for His people. And I know that we don't have time to do this in the lesson today, but if you want to go home this afternoon, probably a good, uh, a good exercise for you would be read Luke chapter number two, and you'll find that when Mary prays and gives praise to God, it is almost verbatim the exact same prayer that is here in 1 Samuel chapter number two, where Hannah prays. If we were to back up now and we've looked at a big picture of where this fits in the canon, now let's narrow down a little bit further into this text, into this book, and into this passage together. If you were to read 1 Samuel chapter number 1, you would find that Hannah is, this is, this is no mere small answer to prayer. This is no mere praying for something, but Hannah has been barren and childless for year after year after year after year. The pain and the agony and the sorrow and the defeat and the anxiety and all of that is not simply a fly by night. It is not a sorrow that comes for a season, but it has been latent and dormant and lying inside of her heart for year upon year upon year. For it says that the other wife in chapter number 1 has had multiple children and not only is Hannah barren, but she is taking the ridicule and the shame and all of the expectations that are out there and she is bearing all of that in her own life. And you'll find that in chapter 1, Hannah does not just go to the Lord once, but she goes a repeated amount of times again and again and again. And can I maybe give you a premature application and say this? There are some people and some believers that say, well, if you have something, just take it to God in prayer and He will answer. Can I tell you something? There are some times that you'll take something to God in prayer and He won't answer. 
And God is more valuable than the answer that you're looking for. You find your joy. You find your salvation. You find the steadiness of your heart to be in the Lord's provision of whatever that may be. She didn't just go to the Lord with a heartache and pray and God answer. No, she went year after year after year after year. And so for those of you that are struggling, I want to encourage you. Don't give up. Pray. Seek God. And even in the hurt and even in the pain, God will steady your heart. And even if He does not give you what you're longing for, He will give you Himself. And it will be more than enough. Amen? Hannah goes to the Lord in prayer so much so that when she goes up to the temple to pray, that the priest thinks that she is drunk. And can I add this? Not only did she go to pray, but she went to fast. Oh boy, I wish I could just teach for a long time today. Do you know part of the reason why I'm telling you, listen, Ruth comes after Proverbs in the Old Testament. Joshua and Judges and then Samuel. Samuel is meant to butt up against Judges. Just read the book of Judges and you'll find out that there is another young man who is born to a lady who struggles in birth in the book of Judges. His name is Samson. His mother has problems like Hannah has. He is born into a Nazarite vow the way that Samuel will be. He will rise the way that Samuel will rise, but he will fall in his sinfulness where Samuel will remind us of the coming Savior who wins the day. And just read the book of Judges and you will find that it is all about parenting there. And you'll see that Samson's parents, they failed to do right. And Micah's parents, which follows in Judges, will fail to do right. And the end of Judges is speaking about parents that are failing to do right. But what happens with Hannah she is the kind of parent who fasts and prays and takes her son to the temple to worship God in chapter number 1. And how does chapter number 1 end? That the son is worshiping in the temple. Why did Samuel worship God? Because mama worshiped God. Don't come to me in 10 years when your kid is not in church if you're not in church now. Oh boy. <laughs> Right? If you want your children and grandchildren to worship God, model that for them and worship Him. So let me just point out a few things. Now we've gone from this very broad picture, and you'll have to forgive me, I just can't preach the Old Testament anymore without giving you that full picture. It's not enough to just give you some words of wisdom. You must know that all of the Scripture leads us to Jesus. It was designed to do that. So that being said, would you just follow me along a little bit different way today? Uh, normally I have some points for you to hang your hats on, but what I want to do is just walk through as many of these ten verses as I can and give you some points about prayer and praise. So from verse number one, read this with me. Then Hannah prayed 
and said, My heart exalts in the Lord and my horn is exalted in the Lord and my mouth speaks boldly against my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Let me just say a few words here from verse number 1 about praising God. I want you first of all to understand that praise is a part of prayer. Right? Do you see that? Look at what it says. And Hannah prayed. Brothers and sisters, sometimes when we show up on Wednesday night and we start to pray, we have a long prayer list and we ought to give all of our prayers to God and petitions to God and beg Him to do things. And Hannah was begging the Lord to do things. But I also want you to understand that along with petitioning and praying and seeking God to do things, there are times where we need to pause and give Him praise and honor and glory for what He has already done in our lives. Hannah prayed. And another thing I want you to see about praise here from verse number one is that it is intensely personal and intensely emotional. And for my intellectuals out there, I want you to understand that yes, we need the intellectual side of our Christianity. We need a knowledge base from which to worship God. But do not cast out the emotionalism of a Christianity and of the Scripture. This lady poured her whole personal heart into what was going on. Look at what it says here. My heart exalts it. It rejoices. It is lifted up. And then she says, my horn, my strength, my essence is exalted in the Lord. And my mouth even speaks boldly against my enemies. And I was thinking earlier this week how in the world I would teach you about this prayer when it says my mouth speaks against my enemies. Can I just say something? She was human too. And she had had it up to here with all of the ridicule of chapter 1 and God answered her prayer and so maybe she gave that lady a holy nana and a boo-boo. You know, I don't know. Maybe Jesus just overlooked it for once. Maybe she just gave him a righteous, take that. Right? It's intense. It's personal. Our praise is a part of our prayer life. Our praise involves individual that God is working in my life and we rejoice with all that we have. Somebody asked me one time, they said, how come you preach the way that you do? Why, why is it that you get so animated? I don't know. It's just inside of me. I feel like Jeremiah just burns in my bones and I got to get it out. And I'm sorry if I blow your ears off with being loud, but preaching is worship for me. I give everything that I have to it. You ought to give everything that you have to sing and to pray and to rejoice. You come in here on a Sunday morning it's like pulling teeth to get you just to sing above a whisper. And I'll tell you, I see some people that sing on Sunday, you don't even sing, you sit there like a holy grunt, like a wooden Indian on a log. Shame on you. If you can't come into God's house and sing at the top of your lungs not caring what your neighbor thinks about it and rejoice, God, if you can't do that, something's broke with you. All my English people just said broken, right? <laughs> yes. Something's broken. Praise is prayer. Praise is personal. Praise from verse number 1 is grounded in God. Look what it says. Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts. Look at the prepositional phrase. Where does it exalt? In the gift that was given? Surely she was excited about Samuel. But the praise is in the Lord. My horn, my strength is exalted. I, I'm lifted up on high in the Lord. And my mouth speaks boldly against my enemies. Why? Because I rejoice in your salvation. 
You know part of the reason why believers on Sunday don't praise God appropriately? Because they're not humble people. You cannot praise God without the inverse taking place. What did John the Baptist say? He must increase and I must decrease. You cannot exalt God without lowering a view of yourself. And if you come in here and you watch everybody else, but you don't sing and pray and praise and love and rejoice, it's because you're an egomaniac. Okay, I'll move on. Verse number two. Not only is praise these things, but I think verse number two and three kind of go together. And I would say, when we praise God, we look to praise Him for His person and His character. In verse number one, surely she is thankful for the salvation, for what God had given her. She prayed for a son, and God gave her a son. But in, hey, our prayers must grow and mature over time. Hello, everybody. I didn't even see y'all up there this morning. I'm sorry. Hey, good to see you, John. Your prayers have to grow over time. Yes, when you pray for individual and specific things, God blesses you with those and you, you rejoice and you're happy, but your prayer life cannot just be you, you prayed for this and God gave you that and you're happy about that. Your prayer and your praise should grow over time so that you're rejoicing and praising Him for His very person and character. Look at verse number 2 and 3 together. There is no one holy like the Lord. That means there is no one separate or other. There is no one good and righteous like the Lord, nor or is there any rock that is the dependability of the Lord that you can count on Him, that He is always there, that He is a mighty fortress, that He is a rock that you can stand on Him? What did Jesus say? The man who builds his house on the sand is a fool. The man who builds on the rock is righteous. Why? Because He is always dependable. What do we learn about God from verse number 2 and 3? That He is holy, He is righteous, He is good, and He is dependable all the time. Even when nobody else in your life is dependable, God can be depended upon. Look at verse number 3. You see what I mean here? Right? When you begin to praise God for what He has done and who He is, you, arrogance has no place in it. Look at what she says. Boast no more so very proudly. Do not let arrogance come out of your mouth. Why? For the Lord is a God of knowledge. And with Him actions are weighed. What do you learn from 2 and 3? That God is holy, that God is dependable, and that God is intelligent. And yes, that's exactly what I said. God is intelligent. I thought this week about what, how to make that point for you. And um, uh, we would say that uh, there's a big word for that. God is omniscient. But I feel like sometimes if I say that on a Sunday morning, everybody says, mmm, that's a good religious word. Yeah, God's omniscient. But I just want all of you to think for a moment, God is intelligent. And you know why I said that? Because that puts God right into where you'll be tomorrow morning. So if you're going to school tomorrow and you're going to write a paper, I want you to understand the most intelligent person that has ever lived in all of the world about whatever subject it is you're writing on, I don't care what it is, it's God. If you're going to go to work tomorrow and you're an engineer or trash man, I promise you the most intelligent trash man that has ever lived and the most intelligent rocket engineer that has ever lived is Jesus Christ. Isn't that what the New Testament says in the book of Colossians? For in Him, that is in Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. All of the wisdom in the world is in Jesus. So I want to ask you something. When you do whatever it is you're going to do tomorrow, are you going to consult with Him? 
Or do you think that you and your books and your friends and your boss know more about what it is that you do than Jesus? Now you see, that just made God real in your life, didn't it? See, you, 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 you go put that in your life tomorrow. Worship God. Praise God. Why? Because He's holy. He is good. Right? Because He's dependable. And because God is intelligent. Well, verse number 4 and 5. Verse number 4 and 5. I, I, I kind of just maybe, if I just dashed off to the side in my Bible here, God's divine reversals. Look, look at this. Verse 4. Right? You see at the end of verse number 3, God weighs the actions, that is, He takes action. So the bows of the mighty are shattered. And notice in verse 4 and 5, you might want to circle the three buts. B-U-T. B-U-T. Okay? The bows of the mighty are shattered, but the feeble gird on strength. Look at verse 5. Those who are full hire themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry cease to hunger. Even the barren gives birth to seven. Now look, this is a poem. It's meant to give you a number of perfection. This is not a mistake. Hannah had six children, not seven. It's not saying that Hannah has seven children. It's just simply giving you a poem and a number of perfection here, saying, listen, God takes things to perfection, but she who has many children languishes. God has a way of making these divine reversals. He turns the world upside down. Everything in the world says, hey, the rich keep getting richer and the poor keep getting poorer, but I'm telling you, this text is telling us that there is a day when those who have everything will have nothing and those who have nothing will have everything. God has a way of these divine reversals. And this is what I was thinking about this week, but this hasn't quite happened yet. In fact, we live in a world that doesn't seem like that text has happened yet, right? It seems like we live in a world where the, the sinful and the wicked are the ones who are succeeding. And if you want to live a righteous and a holy and an honest and an integral life, that you're the ones that are taken away from. But can I say to you, you should trust that God will eventually create a divine reversal so that what He wants done will be done in the world. Amen? And I got, I was thinking my way, way to, to church this morning. Uh, Connie was driving. I was in the back seat and kind of, kind of working with James because otherwise, if I don't ride in the back with him, James makes the ride a little rough. <laughs> and I was back there in the back and I was working with him a little bit and uh, we were thinking together and uh, James said right to me, said, Hey, Steve, this is the way to understand that. Okay. He didn't say that, but this is what I was thinking. Do you want to know why it is that I have absolute confidence that someday in the future God will make all things right? Because right now in the present, the greatest reversal that has ever happened in all the world has taken place already thousands of times over around the world. And that is that I was a sorry, good-for-nothing, wicked sinner. And God reversed my heart. He took out the old and He put in a new 
So that when I didn't love Jesus, He gave me a heart to love Jesus. When I wanted to do my own thing, He made me love Him instead. Where I was on my way to hell, He made me on my way to heaven. He took me from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His dear Son. And Jesus has done that again and again and again right here in this room. And what I'm supposed to do is read that text and say, not yet, Lord. I haven't seen it yet. It seems like the wicked keep succeeding and the righteous don't. Lord, I, it seems like good people who love You are suffering and hurting and it seems like those who don't have no problems and sail on through life. Lord, where am I to look? I'm to look right in my own heart and see that the Lord Jesus says, Son, I have saved you from all of the wickedness by the cross and by the resurrection. I have given you new life. Look to that and have confidence that I'll do it in the future. Amen. Amen. Verse number 6-9. through nine. You're to notice in praise God's power and sovereignty. The Lord kills and makes alive. You, you should tremble at that. He brings down to Sheol, that is death. He raises up. Verse number 7, the Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low. He also exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts. And look there in those verses 6-9. through nine, nine times He does these things. We don't. And what is the point of the passage? Look at the end of verse number 9. For not by might shall a man prevail... Brothers and sisters, when we praise God in prayer, we are acknowledging that it is not by my might, not by my power, but by His Spirit, says the Lord. Amen? We should not fear that which can just kill the body, but we should fear Him who kills the body and the soul and who can go down into Sheol for us and pay our debt and come up out of the grave victorious and give us life. God Almighty is powerful, and sovereignly in control of all things. And this week when you pray, you ought to take some time to praise the Lord for His power and His might and His sovereignty. And verse number 10, those who contend with the Lord will be shattered. Boy, I wish I could take you over to Psalm 1 today and explain to you that Psalm 1 is not just about any righteous man. But it is evocative in verse number 1. It simply means, oh, the righteousness of this man who walks not in the counsel of God ungodly, nor stands in the way of the sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in His law does He meditate day and night. And He will be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth His fruit in His season. And His leaf also shall not wither. Right? Then read the next few verses about the unrighteous. And then go to Psalm 2 and get to the end, verse 9 and 10, and you will find that we must kiss the Son lest His enemies be shattered. Look at the end of verse 10 and we'll call it into our time as we walk into communion today. And He will strengthen to His King and will exalt the horn of His anointed. I told you that is the first reference in Hebrew, to the Messiah in your Bible. This text is not only about the redemptive work that God provided for Hannah and her family, but it is a picture pointing us to the coming of the Messiah in the New Testament. Oh, and if you go to Luke 2, you will find that Mary will pray and praise God in this exact same prayer, welcoming the coming 
of the Lord Jesus Christ who will take away the sin of the world. Those who believe on Jesus have their sins washed away and are given new life. I tell you today, we have a God and, and the Son of God and the Spirit of God who are worthy of praise. Amen? Now, we're going to enter into our time together of the Lord's Supper. And I just want to remind you of this. When we come to this time, we are remembering the Lord Jesus Christ. His death, His burial, and His resurrection. The same Messiah that was promised in 1 Samuel 2 is the same, same Christ that came into the New Testament, died for our sins, and was raised again. And we worship Him. We bring ourselves to this time. And here's what you need to do. In a moment, I'm going to ask for us to kind of bow our heads and close our eyes. I want to give you a space to just pray. The Bible teaches this. If you're here today and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, don't fake it. Don't lie. Don't lie to yourself. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, you're not welcome to take these elements. You say, why are you being mean? No, we're trying to preserve your life. This is not for unbelieving people. When we take the bread and we take the juice, we are saying in our souls that we have received the life of Jesus Christ. And if you haven't, all you're doing is making a mockery out of what He's done. Don't take it. If you're here today and you are a believer, you need to search your heart. Christ has washed all of your sin away. But there are some of you here, you need to pray and just say, you know, Lord, there's some areas of my life that aren't clean. They're not right. And I need to yield those to You. And I want to give you space to do that. And then we'll worship together as we take the Lord's Supper. Would you bow your heads with me and close your eyes? Let's take a moment to pray. You've been listening to Stephen Tillis, pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh. For more information and free access to other messages, please visit us at ebcraleigh.com.